You're listening to Just Asking with therapist Stephen Ng. It's a conversation on what we're all thinking about, but no one's talking about. Our sexuality and how to manage it intelligently. Hi, this is Stephen Ng, and you're listening to Just Asking, uh, where we talk about pretty much anything under the sun that has to do with human sexuality. And I invite you to uh, become your favorite insect on the wall here and listen in on conversations that you might not ever normally have with the people who are actually in your life right now. Uh, I'm with my friend Jackie, and you've brought company. Hi, Jackie. Hi, Stephen. How are you? Who is this? So we talk about lots of awkward things in this in this room. Um, so one of the most awkward is how to talk to your kids about sex and sexuality. So I brought you Jonathan Salkoff, who's a contributor for Reno Dad's blog, and Nicole Howes, who's a contributor for Reno Mom's blog. So um, we can talk about how to talk to your kids about sex and all that that entails. Yeah. That sounds great. Hi, Jonathan. Hi, Steve. Hi, Nicole. Hi there. So you have you... Now, have either one of you actually written anything or made a podcast on this topic so far? Oh, not yet. We've definitely been talking about it uh, at Reno Dads. It's one of the things that's on our list. So maybe we'll have you on our show at some <laughs> point. Yeah, I'd love to do that sometime. And I'd have to agree um, with him as well, as we haven't, in Reno Mom Blogs, really approached this topic very much just because of the sensitivity, I think, surrounding it as we there's so many varying opinions so. you know i was in a, a television interview on the news not too long ago and this very pleasant wonderful uh, reporter made a comment to me on this topic and she said well of course that would be really an awkward conversation to have with a young person and we were talking about um prepubescent children and i remember it was a good day because I was sort of on my game and I didn't come up blank. And I was, uh, I said, well, actually, uh, it's sort of an easy conversation. It's just that people often think about sex conversations as about intercourse when really human sexuality can start with having a crush on a girl at school or a boy at school. It can start with wanting to hold somebody's hand. It could start with uh, somebody simply saying nothing and putting out their hand to take yours. It, sexuality doesn't begin suddenly at one specific moment in our lives. We're born as sexual beings. The first thing the doctor says is, it's a boy, it's a girl. And, you know, it's, a, it's an interesting thing because the way we approached it in our family, um, we were fortunate to be part of a Unitarian church in Arlington, Virginia, before we moved here. And Lucky. they had, yeah. Phenomenal, phenomenal uh, group of people with a curriculum called Our Whole Lives, and they start in first grade. So these conversations with young children, but really age-appropriate things like It's Not the Stork, you know those books that they have, <laughs> It's Not the Stork, it's, it's Perfectly Normal, all these great books. Right. And the curriculum is really age-appropriate all the way through, really the capstone, if you will, is when they are uh, in eighth grade. And that is no holds barred, no questions can be, you know, are, are out of bounds. Um, my children's mother actually taught one year uh, when actually my daughter was in seventh grade, but so she wanted to know kind of what the curriculum was before Eleanor reached eighth grade and was in the actual class for the eighth graders. And it's, um, you know, it's everything. There's nothing off, uh, off limits. Do you know, now, 
you said that was a Unitarian church? That's correct. Is that Unitarian Universalist? Yes, yeah, sorry. Yeah. Okay, so is is that, to your knowledge, is that still a thing they do? Because... It is. In fact, um, it is really one of the things that, um, in terms of <laughs> our church, as it you know was known for in, well, among other things, we were very activist, you know, very sort of, you know, sort of, uh, socially, you know, sort of active stuff, but they, they, um, this particular curriculum was sort of known uh, in Arlington and, you know, McLean, Virginia. Um, and it's, it really is, it starts in first grade, it goes into, there's a fifth grade, you know, version of it, and then in the eighth grade, it's really sort of the, the full, you know, gamut of everything. Is it used across the country? As far as I know, it is, and I believe it's a national sort of curriculum, but each of the churches locally can, you know, I think make their changes that they think are appropriate. And we had doctors teaching it. We had, we had an incredible set of resources, especially in Northern Virginia. But it was, uh, it really was one of those things that um, I thought made the conversations a lot easier in the sense that when our kids were ready to have the conversations that they, you know, they wanted to ask questions, they could do it in that environment and didn't have to be asking their parents, which might feel a little bit weird anyway. But we had other parents who were, you know, in that conversation with them. Gosh, that just sounds um, almost unthinkable. I, I, I just had a conversation with a historian uh, who deals with the church and sexuality, and she and I were, were talking about how really, truly unusual this kind of conversation is in a church environment. So that's... I, I have to say, I, I was really floored by it myself the first time I heard about it. And then when I sat in on the classes for first graders and fifth graders, I thought, oh, well, this works. And then we they recommended those books that I mentioned, the It's Not the Store, you know, It's Perfectly Normal, this whole series of them. Um, and they were great. They were really great to just leave around the house. Like you could leave it around and sort of, the, you know, the kids' curiosity would sort of They'd pick them up and they could read what they wanted and and put it right back put exactly it right back where they, the way it was, exactly the so way that they found nobody it. would know they'd ever exactly. looked at that. Hey, so is that were you raised in a similarly educated, broad-minded family? Um, <laughs> probably not quite so um, broad-minded. No, I mean, I, I mean, my you know my upbringing was in a, a Jewish household, which you know has its own sort of you know baggage, I guess. Sure. Uh, so. Yeah, and and wonderful traditions as well, mm -hmm. along with the the baggage. Sure. <laughs> uh, and what about you, Nicole? How were you raised? Um, well, I was actually raised not, you know, in any sort of religion, anything like that. I was actually raised by a a single mom who was married four times, who had you know sex and drugs and alcohol addiction, addiction, and and we were homeless for quite a bit of the time. So a lot of my sexuality and I've been married 20 years and we have seven kids and a lot of my views on sexuality over the last 20 years have kind of had to undo what I learned those unhealthy behaviors through men coming in and out of our home of what's not okay and so I think helping to develop our kids to develop a, a unique a unique moral compass isn't really important to me and that conversation starts like he says <laughs> Now, you know, my little guy, he's four, and conversation he continually has with me is, Mom, where did, where did I come from? My stomach. <laughs> but how did I get out? <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's kind of a, oh, gosh, now we have to do this. But, you know, and my oldest is 18, and so the conversations, they just vary, and they're ongoing. And, and really, my husband and I, it's important for us to be open and saying, you know, whether we're talking about oral sex or whatever, our kids, that's a free, our home is a free place for them to ask those really ridiculous, hard questions. Now, I have to ask, I mean, how did you get there? 
how did you, because you didn't just get married and then start off having these conversations with your first baby. Um, <laughs> oh, wow. So how does, how does that evolve in a family's life? Um, for us, it's it played out probably not how it would normally for people. My husband and I got married two days after graduation from high school. And so... Yikes, don't do that at home. <laughs> Kids, if you're listening to this, do not do that. Do and not then drive my, us at home. <laughs> yeah, without adult supervision at least. <laughs> no, um, for us, we've just kind of had to trial and error. Um, I probably having a really loving, patient husband has, has helped a lot because it's we've fallen on our face many times because both learn behaviors that are unhealthy. But having those, I think it's just us intentionally wanting to both mutually have these conversations is where it started. It's, and I, I just can't tell you, I'm, I'm speechless with appreciation for your marriage. I think it's just sounds amazing to me that a couple could do that from that early in age and then to do such a good job for the last 18 years. I just think that's amazing. Well, it's It's been a long road. We just celebrated our 20th anniversary and I'm still to myself like, how does that happen? But I think it's, um, you know, we want our kids to to feel loved and, and, and open to have conversations. So. so Jonathan shared with us the Unitar- Unitarian Universalist uh, uh, resources that, that are available probably to people who might not even be Unitarians. Mm-hmm. But what about the resources you and your husband have drawn from? What, what kind of books or? Well, I might be people? the odd man out here. He says, you know, from a Jewish family and, you know, kind of grew up in this Unitarian. Um, I've, I'm a Christian. My husband and I, we were um, followers of Christ. And, you know, I think in this culture, it kind of seems like you're just one of those weird Bible thumping people. And we're just actually so opposite of that is um, we we get our you know our moral compass from the Bible but it doesn't mean we're uh, mean or offend you know want to offend anybody in the that is homosexual or dealing with other sexual issues because we know it's a it's it's real life it's it's what all of our kids are dealing with and <laughs> and so our yeah. compass comes from Christianity absolutely um, that's so well <laughs> What's intriguing to me about Christianity uh, today, after my last conversation with the historian, is looking at how Christianity has evolved regarding sexuality. And I'm old enough to remember in the 60s that when we talked about, when Christians talked about oral sex, uh, it was really under the headline of perversion. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then as the years and decades kind of, well, the, the 70s and 80s, it was pretty much not discussed at all. I think there was a big sea change uh, going on. And then by the time the 90s come around and the 21st century, it's the Christian approach to something as, I think, uh, commonplace as oral sex changed. And and so there was suddenly all that more freedom, right? And in your uh, 20 years of marriage, have you had any kind of evolution in your thinking when it comes to educating your children and Absolutely. Um, I think that's a great question because for me, I think growing up in the Y way area era where um, we went to these big conventions where wait to have sex before you're married and um, sex wasn't viewed as something that's really a gift. It's so it's incredible. And when it's shared in its fullness, it's incredible. Um, so as I entered in marriage, I was very, um, let's just say terrified of anything <laughs> sex because what I saw from growing up was, you know, perverted sex kind of. And then what my husband on this side wanted was a healthy, he wanted to engage me in a relationship and sex being part of that. 
Um, so we've had to evolve and grow together in that because, like you're saying, oral sex, all those things seemed dirty and wrong. And um, if I if I wanted to be a good Christian or, you know, all these things that I want to be because I, that's otherwise, what's the point of me following Jesus if I don't want right. to obey his teachings? But I don't believe his teachings exclude anything in married sex. It's It's awesome. It's exciting. And we should be willing to do that. And that's something we share with our kids as well. Is, well, as controversial as oral sex has been over the decades in the past, uh, just talking about sex, like for you and your husband to right. talk to your children as openly and honestly as you're describing, that is, um, what would you guess? I mean, if you just had to hazard a guess, what would you guess is the percentage of parents in your church who talk that way with their children? Oh, man. And my a minority or a majority? I would say probably minority, which is sad to me because mm-hmm. kids really want to have this conversation is my experience. Our kids are very open. I don't know about you if your kids are as Well, they're open. definitely curious, I'm sure. I mean, like I said, I think a lot of that um, having a community that's supportive of those conversations allows them mm-hmm. to really have an outlet, even if it's not to us directly. Absolutely. It's at least available. And so that was sort of really special about the Unitarian um, Universalist experience that we had and it was really I mean it it really sort of opened it up to you know other other conversations too not just about sex I mean anything that was you know that was sort of that they were curious about one of the things we were talking about before we before we went on the air is you have to talk to your kids younger because when they get to a certain age they don't want to talk anymore Mm -hmm. you know it's it's up until that point they are curious and they do ask the questions but then once they get to their later teens um we're all very stupid and don't know anything anyway i'm told to come back i I, i'm I'm hoping that that happens (laughs) i'm I'm praying for that i'm finding that to be true and untrue at the same time because they want to talk to you but they don't directly ask you so um i'm still being able to have those conversations with our kids but i'm just having to actually have them while they're I'm thinking they're not engaging, but now as my son's, you know, he, our oldest is 18, I'm realizing he actually was listening all those years when I thought he's tuning me out. And so I think they're actually more part of the conversation than we realize. Um, yeah. You know, this. in my experience as a therapist working with adult men, I would say the adult men I work with, they really don't know how to begin that conversation, whether it's talking to a mom or talking to anybody, including a woman they're sexually involved with. They don't, they don't have the language. They don't have the words to break the ice. Mm. You know, I mean, I don't, I don't know of anybody out there who's come into my office saying, well, you know, we've had all the usual conversations about sexuality and finding about each other's preferences and what we like and what we don't like and what we have hangups about and what we feel really strong about. And, and instead, that's typically why they're in therapy. And I, I hate to call it a communications issue because I don't really think it's a language problem. Uh, But I think it seems to me that people are just very uncomfortable and self-conscious and afraid. Well, yeah, it's a comfort. It's definitely a comfort thing. But then um, once you start using the words, I think, in a, I guess, in the right um, environment, then you can start to get more comfortable with it. And I think that was the, the key that I felt like, you know, really... The, the environment of the Unitarian Church especially was that it was very open to all of the questions that these kids clearly had and allowed them to just speak freely without any, you know, any question about whether, you know, I mean, they did things where it was really cool. 
any question that they wanted to ask, they would write it down and it would go into the box and every question got answered. Like, and we're talking like they, and so the kids, it was very interesting to see the evolution because what they would do is at the beginning, they were going for shock value. Like, oh, what about this, you know, horrible you know, like thing, you know, like, you know, two cups, you know, or whatever, two girls, one cup or something. We just go crazy with that stuff, right? Just to get the shock value out there. Right. And when they saw that the teachers, and these were also parents, were just able to answer the questions like, oh, well, yeah, let's go look that up on YouTube or let's go look that up on, you know, whatever, you know, sort of, and then let's go talk about that. And they, then by the end, the questions got real, like, okay, what happens when, you know, and then all of a sudden there's this sort of sea change in the classroom of these 12 or 15 eighth graders, you know, asking real questions. Do you, do you feel like, um, based on that experience, these young people would then be able to go on to have relationships where they could talk comfortably about sexuality with their partner? I think I think it's a really, um, I think it's a, a good likelihood just because they started at this age. I, I think they have to practice. So I do yes. think that it's something that you can't just learn once and then hope that it sort of stays with you. So I do think that if they have partners as they grow up, and you know, again, they're in high school, they're gonna have partners, you know, they're gonna meet, you know, you know, sort of partners, they're going to start to consider that. They have to find somebody that they can talk to and be, you know, able to share that with. You know, I, I love what the Unitarians are doing, but I have to say, I think Nicole, it's point Nicole, mm. continuing the conversation till, till the 18th birthday and the child is still in the home and all mm -hmm. of that because don't the questions change? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, from, say, 13 and <laughs> yeah. 14 to 18. Because, and what are the changes that you've noticed? Oh, well, they go from, you know, how did I get in your belly to is, like we've said, oral sex okay. Um, Mom, what are your thoughts on oral sex? Or maybe not even them asking me that, them kind of hinting around it and me saying, hey, so are you wondering what, you know, dad and I saw on oral sexes? And sometimes my husband's way better at, you know, fielding these questions um, than I am because I'm like, what did you just ask me? But um, just really, I like what you said, though, about um, the panel, basically, where your kids, you know, kind of put a drop box in and, and ask questions. And that's something that I've thought about even implementing in my own home is kind of like this little mailbox where our kids could slide in their questions. <laughs> they and don't I'll, want to ask it directly. Right. Yeah. Obviously, I'm going to know their handwriting, you know, <laughs> who who's asking it. But really this free space for them to say, this is my, my question. And if you put this in the box, then... Um, I'm going to answer it, and I may not want to answer this, but I'm going to I'm going to give it back to you. And so I like that Unitarian um, that model kind of where you get to. Yeah, you guys have a lot of good tricks over there to freely ask for, it. Yeah, for people who are like you know we're not professionals at this. <laughs> I mean, I can tell you like this is all like trial and error, like you said from the very beginning. You know, yeah. for for me, one of the other questions about or one of the other broad areas where kids would have questions, and, I'm, uh, I, and I hope they do have questions, is about uh, mate selection, which is mm. a very cold way of talking about falling in love and dating <laughs> and, and yeah. all that stuff. But um, has, have either of you had any experience talking about mate selection with your children? A little bit. I mean, only in the course of, you know, breakups, you know, my daughter and, you know, sort of her sort of recent and just, you know, over the course of the years in her high school, you know, sort of like the question she sort of has, not so much questions, it was just sort of a discussion, you know. And, and I, I will say that one of the places that this happens is in the car because you don't 
have yeah. to sit facing one another. <laughs> right. I love right. the car. The car. The car is, I mean, this is a I mean, great even, neutralizer. Yeah. It's great. And even, I mean, now, well, of course, my daughter's driving, but, um, you know, there's a there's something really great about being sitting parallel to one another <laughs> and not having to face one another when these questions come up. And there was, you know, there have been a few conversations. I, mean, we, I did a lot of road trips with my daughter for like volleyball, you know, sort of tournaments and you're in the car for four or five hours, you know, you're sort of, you know, and there's, you know, music, she's got the playlist and I've got to, you know, sort of keep driving. But then, you know, the questions start coming and she'll mention, you know, a boy or something like that. And, and so I think, um, in terms of mate selection, it wasn't quite so clinical, but I think it was sort of, <laughs> I mean, that's me. <laughs> I know. but I think it was more along the lines of, well, what do you like about him? kind of questions and what, you know, what's sort of interesting about this, you know, person to you, you know, what makes that person interesting to you? And what does he say that he likes about you? Like those types of questions. And, and that's a, you know, I mean, that's a sort of a, you know, sort of open-ended sort of questions. That makes it really safe. Yeah. Those kind of, those kind of conversations are, I think are really, really safe. And, and I think it sounds like you're doing a really effective job of keeping the conversation going, which I think is critical here Absolutely. instead of being the answer man who's, you know, got some kind of a ready. You know, I mean, response. I'd like to think that she would come to me with these questions, like, "Well, what does you know this boy do?" You know, like, yeah. but I don't think it's quite so sort of straightforward. It's more along these, you know, these sort of moments that you get if you're lucky and you can sort of have them and be open to them. I agree. Yeah. Okay. I do. I think um, for us, um, the we don't just casual dating isn't something we're we're super stoked up about as parents. We're not um, on board with that. Um, and the reason is, is I feel like your heart gets so involved. Um, and, and so how do we have the conversation of how do you pick your mate? Who's the, who are you looking for is one of the things we do is we mutually date our kids at who they're interested in, which may sound super weird and super out there, but not date them in the sense of weird. We're going to bring you flowers and my husband and I are going to court you. It's, we're going to go on dates with you and we're going to, we really want to get to know, um, the person our kids are interested in because they're going to be part of our family potentially right that's the, the purpose potentially I, right, right of dating so we just we try to help them um and of course it's not perfect and i've you know we're only on two kids of dating so far and i have five more behind that so i'll let you know in 20 years how it's this pans out I, 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 it's, it's interesting nicole because i think we i've had the conversation that was more like i don't think you've met your mate with you know, I think you're in high school, and mm -hmm. like there's a long road between now and the time you. I think you might be sort of ready, or even I mean, in those moments, because like, um, you know, their mom and I, we didn't meet until like we were in our, our late twenties, so a little different model, obviously. Right. And and then right. of course now we're divorced, so there's a whole you know other element to that too. So which is like you know things change over the course of your life too, so that there are things that you have to sort of address in that new sort of our new normal here a couple of years in that sort of do kind of factor into the that very conversation i believe because now they're looking at their parents like well i wonder what happened you know maybe they know a little bit more than they're letting on but also like that question of like am i going to choose am i going to choose well you know enough to make you know make it last longer than my parents did. I mean, that, and that's got to factor in. I think it has to be a part oh, of it. Oh, I think every child think. of divorce wants to avoid that, that yeah, I was. train wreck feeling. I yeah. know I did. I, yeah. I grew up in a divorced family. As, and, as I did. And I, I, none of us wanted to have that happen. You were obviously a man ahead of your time, Jonathan, because you got married so late. I was 20 when I got married, and my uh, wife was 19 in my first marriage. 
And I look back and I think I had no idea what I was doing. I had, I had nothing. I had no skills. I had no information. Uh, I just, but I did have a lot of emotional neediness. (laughs) (laughs) And so I was my best effort at taking care of that. Now young people are typically getting married at around 29, even Mm -hmm. 30 for the first time. So when I say you were ahead of your time, I mean, that's really what people are doing it now more and more whereas when I was getting married oh people all around me were getting married at that age yeah it's interesting because I, I think back east where I'm from that was not something I mean I don't know I, I was sort of like on a path after college to you know work and then go to grad school and then I thought okay at that moment I'll be I'll be closer to the person I think I'm going to be and you know as a grown-up I mean in my late 20s and I still don't know that I've grown up necessarily um, but I still think that that conversation with my kids, I, I I know having had that, we've had those conversations. I don't think you've met the person yet. Like, it, I don't think it's, I mean, it's it, you could have, you may have, but like why, you know, sort of like focus on that when you've got to like, you're, you're thinking about getting into college and you're thinking mm-hmm. about your, you know, sort of your, your career, the beginning of your career and things like that. Like, don't let the sort of mate selection thing sort of tie you to a, you know, you know, a, a particular path because you, you're going to make your own path. Yeah, well, I resent the the happy and wholesome upbringing you're giving your children because <laughs> I had I had uh, none of that, and I just a lot of like I said, emotional neediness, and I just it was I was aching with uh, loneliness and and neediness, and it never occurred to me to be thinking the way you. Well, were the thinking. flip side is you know you can have kids who are pretty detached, right? They sort of feel like they're not connecting to people, and and so I see I see that in both you know in sort of both sides of that where I see you know sort of. The kids, my children, you know, sort of sometimes I see them a little bit sort of, you know, holding back from making connections. I I don't know this to be true. I don't spend as much time with them as I'd like to to sort of see that and observe it. But I do sort of get the sense sometimes that they're, they can, you know, they they can sense a little, they, they, they seem a little detached to me at times. Although then I see them interacting with their friends sometimes that are really, really close. So it's, you know, hopefully they are learning to like sort of navigate that. And when they're ready, they'll ask us questions. Yeah, for me, there's a lot of um, gosh, te- technical stuff. And I realize how clinical I must sound talking to you guys about this because I think about that uh, mate selection process and managing our sexuality intelligently. And one of the tools that I like to use is the intentional interview where you actually have like a body of knowledge you're drawing from to ask intelligent questions. The, 30, the 36 questions you not need to those, ask? Not those, yeah. not those questions, but little things. Like I remember in my first marriage, I was a night person and she, or a morning person and she was a night person. And I think we had breakfast maybe, I don't know, five times together in 18 years. And it was just lonely, you know? So uh, it's not a big deal. And I know a lot of people could probably work around that. But it wasn't even on my mind as a question to ask. It wasn't, you know, the whole, are you an introvert or an extrovert? Um, how much affection are you comfortable with on is, a scale Isn't that really just an, an experience thing, too, though? Like, you're sort of, you, you grow into this thing, and then now you have, like, a, this life experience that you're like, oh, well, I, that didn't work out so well. <laughs> Now I'm we're going... trying to avoid divorces. Right. I know, I know. <laughs> I, I don't want to have to marry a series. <laughs> that that's my Seri- educational process. My my educational process is uh, like a grad school of women. I have to marry through. But I, I just wish you know honestly in the high school years there could have been a relationship one hundred and one class or something that would have taught me a little bit more about not just sex per se. But sexuality, including 
um, our roles mm-hmm. in marriage, gender roles, uh, or how much freedom we might have in gender roles. And also, um, geez, what what is it that we're looking for in the ideal marriage? Everybody's got okay. a picture, a template in their head. Sure. What does that look like? Sure. And my template is absolutely incompatible with scads of other people, right? Right. right. And what you're saying, I'm sorry, no, let me keep, um, about that is actually exactly what I mean by dating our kids, a spouse, is there's a... You know, we should have a 101 class, but that should be facilitated by the parents, I believe. It's not a public school thing. It's not a um, private school thing. Parents need to be facilitating this conversation about um, what are you looking for in a mate? And I believe it does start in high school, even though whether or not they've ever, if they're meet, if they've met their spouse yet, which for me, I think there's a real possibility because of my experience um, that you are sitting next to the person in your high school class that you're going to spend the rest of your life with. And um And I think a lot of times as, you know, in this culture is we want our kids to dream and we want them to experience college and all that. Um, But in my experience, there's nothing we can experience um, or achieve being married. Um, My husband has gone through med school and and we did that together. And it's our accomplishment. So I I view it very different. Um, Clearly, yeah. Yeah. It's it's an important one-on-one class that we're having with our kids now. Well, and, and I was thinking about um, the classes that I went through in high school back in New York, and it, it, of course those sex ed classes were very you know sort of more about the physical, like this is what happens, these are the dangers, you know, like, anatomy, <clears throat> physiology, <clears throat> diseases, yeah, yeah. and but pregnancy. And, but I think that's the thing that I I really will say in the UU sort of curriculum that they really get into, especially in that later sort of version of it, which is very much around the relationship sort of things that they want you to start asking those questions. In addition to all of the sort of, you know, strange things that kids can come up with in terms of, you know, their imagination running wild and being asked to, you know, sort of like not have any filter. So it's pretty, it's it's a really good sort of curriculum that's, that focuses on that too. You know, in regard to what you were saying, Nicole, about parents should be ideally that those teachers you know, I, I, I have a fantasy where I could see that coming true. It's I think just it's my that, fantasy too. Yeah, so. <laughs> and I just, but I just think about your mom, right? And my mom, right? Would I have even wanted my mom to have that conversation? My mom couldn't have, right? And I, you know, she yeah, absolutely couldn't have with her own problems, her drinking, mm-hmm. and and everything else. And so, you know, that's why I, I tend to think maybe it's if we say as a society, I'm curious what you think about this idea, that the family is the foundation of our civilization. Shouldn't we maybe do some education around what families and healthy families look like? Absolutely. And but where does that start? Because we all our moral compasses are all so very different. I agree with we have different uh, beliefs. Right. But you know, there's some b- big broad generalities like we all believe you should probably be with somebody who's kind of compatible. Mhm. And then talking about what compatibility is. And then one of the issues that comes up, frankly, in my office a lot is an abuse-free lifestyle. Mm. Because my clients fall in love, they get married, and then it's then the yelling, the put-downs, mm. the name-calling, and sometimes physical violence ensue. And they're still thinking, yeah, but we're in love, so we should still stay together. And at some point, sometimes people end up in hospitals or in jail because... Well, we're still in love and we should be together. Can I add something to what you just said about what families might look like? Because I think, I mean, that sort of is an interesting filter or just a lens, I guess. I would also offer like, what do, what do healthy families sound like? 
what are they how do they treat one another how do and what you just described about that abuse free i think it's not so much you know because the unit could look different right i mean obviously we have a very sort of traditional view mm -hmm. here on Nicole's side, and now I, I'm traditionally divorced, so that looks a certain way. <laughs> I don't know if you can say traditional. But, no, but I mean, it is, right? I mean, unfortunately, for better or for worse, right. or so to speak. Um, uh, and, and, and then there's the sort of, you know, all of the different flavors of families that are out there. But at its core, how you treat another human whom you've agreed to partner with through whatever, you know, means you've met and how you've sort of grown together like it's what you sound like what are the words and the phrases and the you know the things and how you treat one another again you know out loud you know what does that sound like i mean that's kind of what i'm i'm hearing or at least thinking about when you say what is what does a family look like i'm sensing a consensus here <laughs> that we're all kind of in agreement that we should be talking about this very subject like what we, ideally would it look like if you were successful in putting this together mm -hmm. And that it should be ideally respectful and abuse-free and, and all of that. So that's pretty, uh, I think we should probably stop while we're still agreeing. <laughs> while we're in violent agreement. Right. I want to thank you, Nicole. Thank you, Jonathan, for being here. And for those of, of you out there listening who want a little more information, uh, please go to your magic computer box and check out... Uh, Reno Mom's blog and Reno Dad's blog. And uh, you'll probably hear some more from Jonathan and Nicole. And if you want to submit a question or a comment, you can go ahead and contact us at, or you can tweet us at Stephen Ng at, MF, at Stephen Ng MFT. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs>